0: sermon text reading today comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. and they sowed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths this is god's word
1: thanks be to god do you join me in prayer god we have heard this story many of us most of us we have read this story we are familiar with this story And yet, it is nonetheless sobering when we consider it yet again. The fact that everything was perfect, and here we have Genesis 3. And so we pray that as we consider the darkness of this story, the darkness of this episode, you will grow in us a renewed sense of awareness the prince of the power of the air and his tactics. You will also grow in us today a renewed sense of hope that the battle has been decisively won and that we can look forward to a day we don't even have to be in the presence of this darkness. We pray that you would speak to us now and in speaking that we would listen, that even now you would guard our minds and hearts against how the enemy would have us distracted, thinking about other things. And you would speak to encourage us and build us up as only you can. And for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if I were to ask you, what is the darkest day in history? What is the worst day that the world has ever known, what would you say? As you can imagine, lots of different people have had lots of different answers to that question. There's an article that I read this past week, and in the title it has the words, darkest day, and it defines the darkest day in history as that day long, long ago when supposedly an asteroid burst through the world's atmosphere and landed somewhere around the Yucatan Peninsula and it caused all sorts of catastrophic damage and by the time it was over, 75% of all species on Earth were extinct, including most tragically the dinosaurs. We only have bones now. That's probably a good thing, right? Uh, (laughs) Others have defined the darkest day in history as the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Uh, Others have defined the darkest day in human history as September 11th, 2001. There are plenty more examples where those come from. Maybe you're thinking of a different historical event, or maybe you're thinking of something a little closer to home, a little more personal. You can't help but think of the darkest day in your history. No, it didn't have global or national or statewide or even citywide implications but it was nonetheless tragic to you. None of us are immune to tragedy, suffering, pain, worry, and loss because we're humans. And to be human means to experience in one way or another pain and suffering. But why is that? Why do we as humans have to deal with all of the strife of life? Why is it that to be human is to suffer? Well, the answer to that question is revealed by answering the first question I asked you, exploring that, what is the darkest day in history? And I want to propose to you that the darkest day in the history of the world is the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Or if it's not the darkest day, it's second only to the, the day when the Son of God himself was murdered On the cross, but I'm inclined to say that the temptation of Adam and Eve and their fall was the darkest day because, even with the cross and the subsequent resurrection of Christ, there comes that decisive blow that's dealt to the villain we're going to find in our story for today. The temptation and fall of our first parents is so dark and tragic. Because it's the fountainhead, the source from which every single sin and single instance of suffering has flowed. All of creation is what? It's groaning, as Romans 8 says, with the weight of sin's effects. It's why we have hurricanes and earthquakes and wildfires and roaches. We did not miss roaches living in Wisconsin. (laughs) But the fall of Adam and Eve didn't just affect the natural world, As we know, most tragically, the fall of Adam and Eve corrupted the most glorious of God's creatures, us. Every human who's ever lived and will live is an image-bearer of God and an image-bearer of Adam. King David said it best in his great confession in Psalm 51.5. He says, "'Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, "'and in sin did my mother conceive me. "'We sin because we are sinners.'" not the other way around. And as we all know, can all attest to this experientially in our own lives, the sinfulness of human beings creates suffering and pain like nothing else has and nothing else ever will. To be human is to suffer. And that's all because of this episode in Genesis 3, the darkest of all days. Now, instead of keeping our distance, so to speak, uh, even though we might want to, from this historical event, what I want us to do together today is to live within it. I want to close the distance between us and our first parents. Yes, this happened thousands and thousands of years ago. There are no humans who have ever lived whom we have more distance from. And we could study this story at a distance and talk about the doctrine of original sin and depravity, and we would be right to do that. But this Story that happened all those years ago, we have to get this. It's a story that plays out in our lives every single day. We have a sinful nature that's been passed down from generation to generation, but we act on that sinful nature as we give into the very same tactics that were used on Adam and Eve. What our first parents faced on the darkest day in the history of the world, brothers and sisters. What they faced, you and I will face before the sun goes down tonight, rest assured. So we need to step into this story. As gloomy as that might sound, it is. The darkest day happened because of the darkness of sin. And the darkness of sin, as we all know, is still at large in our world and in our hearts. And so we need to arm ourselves this morning. And become less and less ignorant, as 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, less and less ignorant of the devices of Satan. And we'll do that by looking at the nature of sin in this text. We'll look at the nature of sin to arm ourselves against it, and we'll see three things emerge. You can write these down if you're taking notes. We'll look at how sin is deceptive, how sin is desirable, and how sin is devastating. How sin is deceptive, how sin is desirable, and how sin is devastating. Now, kids, I want to talk to you for a second. If you're not taking notes, uh, and I know that you're listening, I want you to do something different. Instead of taking notes today, I want you to draw a picture of this episode in Genesis 3, of the serpent tempting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, all right? I want you to draw a picture while you're listening, and I want to see those pictures after the service today, all right? All right? So we all have something to do. Let's jump in. First, how is sin deceptive? How sin is deceptive? Verse 1 of chapter 3, the curtain opens on a bit of an unexpected scene. You can imagine that we hadn't ever read Genesis before. And we just ended with chapter 2. The curtain closes on chapter 2 on the essence of perfection. The Garden of Eden, with all of its... Beauty and abundance and safety and joy and innocence. Adam and Eve are completely and utterly innocent. They're naked and unashamed, like my kids in my backyard sometimes. As Pastor Matthew drew out for us last week, Adam and Eve are fully known and fully loved by God and one another. There's not a need or carry, care in the world, uh, need or care or worry in the world. It's the crystal clear waters of the Caribbean without the jellyfish or sharks. Is Disney World, if you can imagine, without the lines and prices. It's always Christmas and never winter. But there's a snake in this garden. As the curtain opens on chapter three. Not just any snake, this serpent is unique. Listen to verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so it was a beast that God had made And as we've already read, everything that God had made, he declared to be good. But this serpent is not good, as we'll come to find out. So who is he? How is he unique? Who is this serpent? Revelation 12 and 20 identify this ancient serpent as the devil and Satan, He appears throughout the scriptures, as we know, as an adversary to God and his people. He's referred to as a roaring lion seeking to devour. He's referred to as the prince of the power of the air. He's referred to as the father of lies. That is who this serpent is, or rather who is embodying uh, this creature that God had made. But how and why is he here? And What is he up to? The first of those questions, how and why he's here, is, more difficult to answer, so I'm just gonna go straight to question two. What's he up to? No, I'm kidding. I'll give you a little bit. Uh, How and why the devil Satan is in the garden, we have to say it's a mystery for the ages. And by the way, I would love to chat with you more after the service all about that. I also want to shamelessly plug our Sermon Recap podcast. You should listen to that this week. We're going to get into the origins of evil and Satan a little bit this week, so be sure to take advantage of that for now. I'll say this. We do have some clues from the New Testament from the book of Jude. Uh, Satan may have been among some of the angels mentioned there who who fell into sin, and uh, there's some Old Testament references as well to earthly kings who are denounced for their pride and those may indicate something of the nature of, certain, of Satan's fall. Now, ultimately, we don't know how or when this happened, but we know that it did. Satan had to have fallen into sin and evil because, don't miss this, he was not created as sinful or evil. All that God makes is good. Everything that God makes is good, which means that God is not the author of evil. That is crucial for us to understand as his people today. Yes, evil is present in the garden prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, but God did not create it. So then that begs the question, does that mean that God's not in control? Of course not. We have to get this as well. Evil is not equal. Evil is not equal God is opposed by the devil throughout the scriptures and even now, but God has never been, nor will he ever be, truly threatened by the devil. John Piper says it this way, the devil is a lackey on a leash. More on that in the podcast this week. We should, however, not leave today not believing these two things. One, God assumes control over evil And also, God does not assume culpability for evil. God is equally sovereign and pure. The darkest day happens by his design, and yet it breaks his heart. So, what is Satan up to? That's a much easier question to answer. The devil here uh, in the garden is here to deceive. He's described as crafty, Uh, Which, which, by the way, doesn't always come with a negative connotation. The word could be translated as shrewd or or clever. It's the idea idea of someone who's aware of their surroundings and knows how to use their surroundings uh, in situations to their benefit. We all know people like this. Of course, in this case, the serpent does use his craftiness to deceive for evil purposes. Listen to the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, "'Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?' Now there are loads of deceptions here. We're going to get into those. First of all, the, servant, uh, the serpent uh, speaks to the woman Eve, while Adam is right there. We know that he's there uh, because she hands him fruit in just a couple of verses, and it says that he's right there. We also know he's there because Satan uses the plural form of "you here. So Satan says, "Y'all. If I was preaching at my previous church in Wisconsin, Satan would say, "You guys." He uses the plural form, and so we know that Adam's there. We know that Satan is talking to Adam and Eve, and he's doing that through Eve, and that's deceptive because even in his choice of whom he speaks to, he's starting to twist their minds and their hearts to unstraighten what had been so clear to them before. As Matthew drew out for us last week, God created Adam to be the leader and protector of his family the guardian of the garden and his wife. And God created Eve to be his helper, to nurture and nourish the garden and their family. And while the result would have been, I would argue, the same had the devil spoken to Adam first, he talks to Eve. He chooses Eve. Not because she's more gullible, get this, not because she's more deceivable. His choice of Eve is an all out assault on the good design of God. It's a subversion of the way God had designed their relationship and their family to operate. And this is the first step of his deception. The devil is setting himself up against God. And both Adam and Eve, they should have spotted that immediately. Eve should have hightailed it in the other direction. Adam should have stepped in and crushed the head of that serpent like the man that he was created to be, but instead he shrinks back into the distance and silently lets the twisting and the deceiving continue. And continue it does. Have you noticed yet that Satan doesn't use the personal covenantal name for God? Throughout chapter two, as you'll, you'll notice in your Bible, he, he uses the personal, or the personal name for God, the Lord God, Yahweh, had been used, but here Satan uses Elohim, Not a wrong name for God, just not the personal name for God. Why is that? Well, he wants to distance himself as far as he can from God, but he also wants to distance Adam and Eve from God, and so he dare not use Yahweh, more twisting, more deceiving. And then his question comes, did God actually say? That's problematic in and of itself. The first word in the Hebrew there is, is actually really, It's almost like he's saying, really? Did God really say that? And with that, he sets the tone for their conversation. Conversation that's now built on questioning the word of God, who, by the way, may not be as close to you as you previously thought. And then his depiction of God's word, it adds to the deception. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The easy answer to that is no, God didn't say that. But there's more to that question. He's not only misrepresenting God in His Word, He's characterizing God here as miserly, as stingy, as overly restrictive and prohibitive. With one simple, deceptive question God's good and beautiful design for the man and woman's distinct roles doesn't matter. God is distant, and God is overly strict. And now Eve has to respond to that. And her answer is so revealing, folks. It's so revealing. It shows us the deceptive nature of sin. Verses two and three, you can read with me. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Uh, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now what she gets wrong here, she may not even know. The seed of sin has been planted in her mind and heart, possibly without her even realizing it. When she quotes God by saying, we may eat of the, the fruit of the trees of the garden, she leaves out an important detail. Because what did God's, God had said, he said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden with her first words to the serpent, she downplays the overwhelming generosity and goodness of God. And then she, when she makes reference to a prohibition, she adds to it. What does she say? Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. But why does she add to what God had said? Because just as she downplays the goodness the generosity and the benevolence of god she expands on the restriction and the prohibition of god don't you see how she's playing right into the serpent's hands or coils or whatever he knows he has her now and you can just see him licking his fangs she's not done though because in her final statement lest you die she leaves out another important detail Remember the part where God had said, you shall surely die? And what this reveals ultimately is that she has minimized the consequence God had promised. And it sets the stage perfectly for what Satan says next. In verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This first statement that's not in the form of a question is an outright Lie, but it's a lie that unfortunately Eve is ripe to receive. Satan gets the phrasing right when he says, surely, but this makes the lie even more sinister. He knows that he's deceived her, so he'll be successful with an outright denial of the truthfulness of God's word. You see, he couldn't have opened with that line, you won't die. That would have been like dropping an unbaited hook into the water in, in hopes of catching a fish. That's not going to work. Instead, he does, as Kevin DeYoung says, he presents the lure, but he hides the hook. Kids, I want to talk to you again and ask you if you like fishing. You can raise your hand if you do. You're with me. All right, we've got some, we've got some, uh, fisher boys and fisher girls in the room. That's great. I'm going fishing in, uh, about a week with my dad in arkansas and i am so excited about it so let me ask you this kids what do you have to put on a hook to catch a fish bait Bait. that's right you got to put bait on the hook to catch the fish you got to put a worm or a cricket or some kind of lure and why do you have to do that you have to do that so the fish will think it's getting an easy meal right but is the fish getting an easy meal As good as that lure looks, as good as that bait looks and you want it to look good, what the fish doesn't know is that this is gonna be bad for it. This is not gonna be what the fish had in mind an easy meal. Fish is gonna get hooked. And that's why you can't put an empty hook with no bait in the water because the fish will know I probably shouldn't bite a hook, right? That is what the devil does to us. He wants us to think, kids, he wants you to think That disobeying your parents is going to be good for you. Or that being rude to your brother or sister is going to be good for you. And what he doesn't want us to know, what the devil doesn't want you to know, is that is not going to be good for you. It's only going to be bad for you and lead to sadness. That's what the devil has done to Eve here. He has deceived her into not seeing that where she's going is really bad for her. Brothers and sisters, sin is deceptive. The devil comes to us with subtlety, with craftiness, it's hard to see it. But we have the benefit of knowing his tactics. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you feel distant from God, you feel like God has abandoned you, like he couldn't possibly love you or favor you, based on what's going on in your life. Now, we've all felt that way. But what we often fail to do when we find ourselves in that place is to remember that Satan has us right where he wants us when we're in that place. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying it's wrong for us to have those emotions or to express those frustrations. We can't read the Psalms and come away with believing that. What I am saying is that that ancient serpent wants us to, in those seasons of grief or despair, he wants us to come away believing that God is only Elohim and not Yahweh. Because as a result, we will go deeper and we'll question his word. I read somewhere, and it went something, this great statement, it went something like this. It's always stuck with me. I hope it sticks with you today. The question that was asked of Eve Did God actually say? Was a question that only had to be asked of a person once. Because after that moment, it's a question that would be printed on the heart of every human being. Did God actually say? We are all predisposed to asking that question. Even when we don't know that we're asking it, and likely we often don't, think consciously, did God actually say? And yet our actions reveal that is what we are thinking and feeling. Did God actually say that I should love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? Did God really say I should submit to my husband? Kids, did God really say I should obey my parents? Did God really say that I should love my enemies? They're on a different side of the political spectrum. <laughs> like that neighbor? Did God really say I'm supposed to love that neighbor? Did God really say that I should be quick to listen and slow to speak? But what is it for you? Fill in the blank. We're also deceived into believing, like Eve, that God is not good and gracious and benevolent. We'll downplay his goodness by complaining. Forgetting all the ways in which he has proved himself to be faithful and most tragically will downplay the ultimate act of his faithfulness in saving us from our sins. How have you been deceived into downplaying the goodness of God in your life like Eve did? You may not even know that you're doing it. I often don't, and Lydia, my wife, often has to remind me of God's faithfulness to me and to our family. We should do that for one another. As family members and as faith family members, let's help one another remember and recount the abundant blessings God has given to us. By doing this, we will be further arming ourselves against the devil's tactics, who wants to make us think that God is not good and not generous and not benevolent. And likewise, we should encourage one another as a faith family to not... Expand upon the restrictions and the prohibitions of God because if we don't consistently remember that he is good and gracious and benevolent and if we don't resist the temptation to expand the restrictions of God then inadvertently we will begin to think of God as the devil wants us to as miserly and stingy and overly prohibitive. Let's help one another, church. Let's help one another to not miss and remember goodness of God. Because when we're left to our own devices, we'll even do what Eve does in her final statement to the serpent. We'll be deceived into downplaying and softening the consequences of sin. Who is this really hurting, after all? And God will forgive me. Folks, to soften the consequences of sin is not only to further ready ourselves for disobedience. To soften the consequences of sin is more deeply To be ungrateful for the cost of our salvation is to take for granted the fact that Jesus did surely die for our sins. When our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, we we can't help but fix our eyes on lesser things. So sin is deceptive. And secondly, sin is desirable. How is sin desirable? Verse five, read with me. A serpent Continues, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, at this point, the devil's in full on denial mode. But Adam and Eve are already past the point of no return. They're sold, Uh, they've been deceived into desiring what the fruit will give them. And do you see how strong the allure is here? Satan is building on the notion that God is stingy, he's holding out on you, and he's petty. God doesn't want you to ascend to his level. He wants you to know your place, stay in your lane. It's like the devil saying, no, 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 no. no." There's so much more to be had here. I mean, nobody puts baby in a corner, right? (laughs) His lie is so alluring because it plays on their desire for autonomy and position and pleasure. Sin is so desirable because it promises to give us what we want, that validation, that power, that feeling. Just listen to verse six here. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What she wanted ultimately was to go her own way. The wisdom that allured her, it wasn't simply the kind of wisdom to just help her distinguish between the good and bad ways of making decisions, it was a secret kind of wisdom that God had and that she did not. It was a godlike wisdom that would give her godlike status, or so she'd been told. Uh, most of us don't think when we sin. What I really want out of this is to be a god. But, just like Eve, who may not have been thinking that consciously either, that is, in essence, what we're attempting to ascend to. We're unseating the Lord from the throne of our hearts, and we're placing ourselves there instead. We're like the Israelites in the time of the judges. What does it say about them? They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And the world around us is no help at all, because, friends, that is the mark of our culture God is no just and righteous authority, if authority is even something that should be. If he infringes upon what I decide is right for me, personal autonomy has become the highest freedom of our land. And so the world around us incites the desires that we all have to go our own way, to decide for ourselves what is right in our own eyes. Now we all have these desires born out of our inherited sinful nature and the devil plays on these desires. He's like Scar in The Lion King. If you remember in The Lion King, Simba has been told by his father Mufasa that he's going to inherit the kingdom which is everything the light touches except for this one small shadowy part. This one small shadowy part that Simba is to never go. Enter Scar the jealous and bitter uncle. He deceives Simba by playing on his desires, by playing on Simba's sense of curiosity, a sense of adventure, and ultimately his pride. He says something like, an elephant graveyard is no place for a young lion. Oops, I've said too much. It's devious. It's deceptive, albeit brilliant. We need to all be aware of what our desires are. Not all of which may be bad, but all of which may be enticed to divert our attention and affection away from the Lord God, our God, Yahweh. The way Satan diverts Eve's attention and affection away from the Lord is with a lie. Half-truth, to be specific, but no less a lie. Half-truth, a.k.a. lie. He says that they will surely, gets that part right, not die that their eyes will be opened then they'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And he's not wrong, but he's masking the true nature of the results of their disobedience. What he doesn't tell them is how devastating sin is. Final point for today as we look at the nature of sin to arm ourselves against it. Final point, how sin is devastating. It is deceptive, it is desirable, and it is devastating. Part of the tragedy of this darkest day is just how rapidly the woman and man commit their act of treason. The groundwork has been done in their hearts. The actual act of disobedience, if that's all we could see, it would be like the tip of an iceberg. Can't see the enormity of what lies beneath the surface, and so the groundwork has been done. Now listen to the second half of verse six. "'She took of its fruit and ate, "'and she also gave some to her husband "'who was with her, and he ate.'" In Hebrew, it's written to accentuate the speed so we could read it like this. She took and ate and gave and he ate. Boom! Serpent's work is done. In a split second, everything came crashing to a devastating low, right? The Caribbean got jellyfish and sharks. Disney World got lines and prices. Now it's always winter and never Christmas. Why? Because they dropped dead right there, right? Just as God had promised. No, they died a more terrible death that day, a spiritual death. Separation from the only source of life and existence, Yahweh. Of course, they eventually would die physically as a result of their rebellion, but we can't miss this. The devil lies to them and tells them that they won't die when he knows that they will die, just like he had. The devil lies to them and tells them that they'll be like God when he knows that they'll really become just like him the devil knows good and evil because he is evil and he so desperately wants Adam and Eve to join him what how does the saying go misery loves company what they should have said is no like get out of here we're already like God He made us in his image and we have everything we need. And so anything that you want us to take that we haven't already been given will only be bad for us. That would have been great, right? But instead they take what they believe will be best for them. And the results, folks, the results are devastating. They died that day and they knew it. Now, they knew good and evil all right, but it was more than they bargained for. They knew evil like a cancer patient knows cancer in a way that is different than how a doctor knows cancer. And Because of that, they respond in a way that I think all of us would have and all of us do. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their innocence had been replaced with guilt. Whereas they were naked and unashamed, they attempt to clothe themselves because they are ashamed. And while their attempt to hide their guilt is absurd, can't really hide it, their instinct is not wrong. They know now that they're guilty, and because they are fully known in their guilty state... They doubt that they can be truly loved by each other and by God. They become rebels in their rejection of God's authority and provision. They become separated from the pure and loving presence of God, and they know it, and it is devastating. Devastating. What Adam and Eve set in motion here is a vicious cycle that continues to this day by nature. We are simultaneously suspicious of other people's judgment of us, and we are judgmental of other people. Simultaneously, we are untrusting of other people, and we are unloving towards other people. And It's all because of sin which promises life, but only delivers death. We're like a fish who see and smell and hear and touch and even taste what we think will be good for us, but it kills us in the end. The devastating nature and pattern of sin affects us all as it did our first parents on the darkest day. And so we have to be aware of the devil's tactics in deceiving us, enticing us in our desires and Hiding the devastation that sin brings. We have to take up the shield of faith, church, and remember that where sin promises life and only delivers death or brings us into death, God brings us into life through the death of Jesus. Jesus, who was perfectly aware of the devil's tactics when he was tempted in the wilderness, and who, unlike Adam and Eve, triumphed with the word of God. Jesus, who was tempted in a different garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and there, in his suffering, unlike Adam and Eve, submitted to the will of his father instead of going his own way. Jesus, who took and ate of death so that we may take and eat of life. The devastation of Eden and our lives has been remedied by the devastation that Jesus endured on the cross. Derek Kidner, the commentator, says it this way, speaking of the first sin. He says, so simple the act, they take and eat. So simple the act, but so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. For all of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, Naomi, we are fully known and fully loved. Not naked and unashamed, better than that. We are clothed with the righteousness and beauty of Christ. Our innocence has been restored because we have the innocence of Jesus. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to hide from God and from one another. And though we still fight against spiritual forces of evil, church, we are armed and ready. We're freed from the power and the penalty of sin. Church, that ancient serpent is on borrowed time. And while he shudders at the thought of what is coming, we eagerly await when we'll be finally freed from even the presence of Satan, sin, and death. Then the darkest day will be utterly eclipsed by the light of his glory and grace.